Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Hi, welcome to this bonus episode of the Diversity Dish Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Her name is Vernita Adele White, and she's a contributing writer and social entrepreneur. As the founder and creative director of Human Intonation, her works spanning the fashion, philanthropic, and events industries continue to advocate for change for critical social and human rights issues, HIV AIDS, racial justice, and climate change. Her writing has appeared in The Daily Beast, The Huffington Post, Homme Noir, and Madame Noir, among other outlets. I want to just jump into this conversation because it's a long one, I'm not going to lie, but it's a really good one, and I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the whole thing and hear about the article that she wrote for The Daily Beast and how it's exposing one of America's oldest magazines. Hey, Renita, it is so good to have you on Diversity Dish today. How are you? Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Seti, for having me. This is um, really, really timely and truly appreciated. Oh, I appreciate you making the time to come on because I'm, I, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am to have you here and to be able to talk to you about your article. So before we get into it, I want to let people know exactly why I'm excited to have you here because you, are, you wrote an article that came out in the Daily Beast on October 25th, actually 2020. And the title of that article is, I experienced systemic racism at one of America's most prestigious magazines. And the title is great, but when you really get into the article, it's very eye-opening and it's so, so timely and it's so interesting. And so I just want you to, I'm going to let you take the floor. I want you to, let's start with, I'll give you a question to start with. Okay. Okay. When you were contemplating, and I think that you did mention it in the article, but, but because we're here on the podcast, I want you to kind of reiterate. But when you were contemplating putting pen to paper and writing this article that really highlights this very large corporation and what's going on in there what were you thinking like how were you feeling and what 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 kind of thought patterns did you go through before you said you know what to hell with it I'm gonna do it yes and actually I love that what you just said at the end because there was that (laughs) moment that I was like to hell with it um it has been a journey that's the first word that comes to mind journey when I think about what it took to get to the point of me choosing to write the article, to press on when I was like, this is hard, 
to press on. I was like, this is crazy to press <laughs> on when other people were telling me that this is crazy because who goes up against a brand like Town & Country and Hearst Corporation, Hearst Magazine? Right. The short answer is the idea that this went unsaid, mm. that I would wake up 10 or 20 or 30 years from now and have to look at myself in the mirror and recognize like I didn't, I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I never said anything. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, that the pain of that thought that I didn't step stand up for myself, I didn't stand up for others, that I actively, knowingly contributed to our time and space in this country not moving forward in the way that it needs to, mm-hmm. the pain of that thought outweighed any potential consequences. Mm-hmm. From, mm-hmm. from writing the article. So yes, I did think about what if there's backlash? What if my personal character or my business character is attacked? What if I'm blackballed from this industry? And Hearst is huge. I mean, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A, a couple of days after the, I'm not even gonna lie, a couple of days after the article came out, this mysterious package ended up on my front desk porch Mm. Uh, and you know from the UPS man but I was still like who sent me this I'm not expecting a <laughs> I'm not expecting a package you know joking yeah. but not joking you know people yeah, yeah. reach out to me and say you know have you received any death threats yet because it's not lost on me that it's only a short time ago that speaking up in this way to this type of corporation as a black woman um, talking about a virtually all-white magazine Mm-hmm. that I would have been dead and no one would have been held accountable for it. Right? Okay. And and that is real talk right there because that that would happen and it would be like, okay, and that happened and move on, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. So I want you now to tell us about, give us a synopsis or give us a little bit about the article because I don't know if everybody's written, read the article. I know that I'm going to have, I have it linked down in the show notes and I'm going to do my best to amplify the article. But I, if nobody has read the article, give them a quick synopsis of what it entails. Sure, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, that package was, it was actually a gift basket. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's nice. It was, it was. It was actually, it was like my first gift basket for someone showing me appreciation for the advocacy of standing up for us. So that's I, beautiful. Yeah, so I do, I, do, I did appreciate that. But in terms of the article, so I experienced systemic racism at one of America's most prestigious magazines. When you think of a brand like Town & Country, uh, Town & Country is actually the oldest continuously circulating magazine in the United States. Mm. Uh, it's a 174-year-old magazine, and I opened the article by stating that as a 174-year-old magazine, Town & Country has actually been in circulation longer than the institution of slavery has been abolished in this country. Correct, right? And <laughs> yes, and that came out of me kind of getting into a research part of this article because I say that all that to say that when I started to reflect on certain things that were happening and why was I being treated a certain way and why wasn't I 
getting the same opportunities as other people, it is ingrained in this brand's DNA, DNA. Mm-hmm. over the last seven, 174 years to be biased, discriminatory, and outright include or imbue systemic racism in its policies and practices in the state of state mm. business. And that is mm-hmm. from a hiring, a procurement, a recruitment point of view. So the, mm-hmm. the broad overview of the article is that I actually was at Town & Country as an independent event supplier. I'm an independent event executive producer um, as one of the hats that I wear as an entrepreneur. And I, over the course of four years, Mm-hmm. I was contracted with Town & Country for its Town & Country Philanthropy Summit. I was contracted there for the first two years as a supplier, meaning I should say in a support role. I've been mm-hmm. brought in to do a support role on that. And after the first two years, there was a transition where the person who brought me in, it was a full-time Town & Country staff person who was the lead producer for that Philanthropy Summit. She was leaving the company and mm-hmm. she knew and then warned me that instead of her position being filled full-time again, that she was actually, that the company was actually going to transition it to a contractor uh, Mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. So here's an opportunity, right? She's like, oh my God, Renita, you're amazing. This, you know, there's going to be this opening. They're going to be looking for a contractor. I'll recommend you. And Mm -hmm. she did. So before she left the company, she recommended me and said it wasn't even entertained as a conversation. Now, Mm -hmm. here I am as a qualified, I've been producing events at that point um, over 10 years. Now I've been producing events for over 15 years Mm -hmm. and um, again, had the experience, conferences, large-scale fundraising, galas, award shows, product launches, you know, nothing where I would step and shy away and say, oh, no, no, I'm not able to do this. Mm -hmm. I was excited for her recommendation and I knew I was qualified. And yet, when I say it wasn't even entertained as a conversation, lots of vague kind of, oh, we're not sure, Mm -hmm. you know, this, and this is in response to me, I'm following up, hey, you know, what do I need to submit a proposal? Can I get a meeting? Let's have a phone call. And these are, you know, I've worked with this, this team for the first, this two years. Mm -hmm. And no follow up, no follow through, lots of just kind of pushing me off, follow up with us again in a few months. Right. So these are, so these are actually people who knew you, right? That you're, yes. that you're, that you're engaging here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they knew me, but again, you know, to the point of, they knew me as the support role. Right. And okay. I distinctly feel like they did not give me the opportunity to show, demonstrate and submit a proposal that involves my full credentials. Right. No worries. And so with that being said, there really was no consideration. I never mm-hmm. submitted a proposal. I never received an RFP. Mm-hmm. I never received the full details of what the role would include so that I could submit a proposal. Sure. And five months later, instead, I received, hey, Bernita, would you like to continue in your support role? And I was like, well, well I mean, I could do that. But I was really excited to have this conversation around the lead producer role. Right. You know, what's happening with that? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, no. I know we've been putting you off for five months, but now we suddenly have this plan. We already have a plan in place. 
mm-hmm. or the workload. And so if anything changes, we'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. as I'm saying this back, I can to your just kind of piggybacks off your first question. At that time, I have no problem saying I did not feel empowered. I did not feel like I could say something. I did not feel like I had a safe space to speak up and say, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why haven't you given me the opportunity to even submit a proposal when I am, when I've already worked with you for two years and I, I'm qualified for this position? Now, I've been mm-hmm. one thing, if I had submitted a proposal and they said, oh, no, Bernita, we want to do, go in a different direction. Yeah. Budget. Fine. You know, you submit a proposal, you win some, you lose some. It's the fact that I was denied the opportunity to apply. Right. So then you look at that and you say, well, okay, maybe not such a, you know, coincidence. They wanted me to do mm, that plan. Mm. The full-time staff person who left, who recommended me, blonde white woman, mm-hmm. was replaced with a contracted producer who you can imagine is the blonde white woman. So this was, this was something that I found very interesting as a through line if it, if through your article. Was that specific thing that, there were a lot of blonde white woman, women who were hired while you were, you know, while you could see all of this happening. And I had this question in my head. I was like, is that their idea of diversity? Because sometimes companies just think that because they're hiring a woman, that's mm. diversity. And that's kind of a problem, which is why I, I have a hard time. Like, you know, I'm a, diversity, equity, inclusion. I now put equity and inclusion before I put diversity Yes, because I have a problem with that because it's not about women because, and I spoke to a white woman just about this yesterday, that white women will start a venture that is meant to be inclusive. Then when it doesn't serve their purposes, they will shed all the color and keep it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the question I had. Do you think that that's what they think they're doing when they're hiring, you know, a blonde white woman instead of, you know, whatever else? Yeah. Cause I think that, I think it's twofold. I think the idea of like white American women rising up the, the ranks and, you know, breaking through glass ceilings, you know, we know that like, that's a true thing. Mm-hmm. And yet though, like within that, like we talk about feminism and, um, you know, obviously this year we, there was the celebration of the, you know, the first century since the 19th amendment and women's right, right to vote. That was all meant for white women. Yes. And then when you add color to it, it's, there's still the like, oh, but we need this for us. Like this is for white women, not for women of color or for black yeah. women, you know, like yeah. black women, Latina women, women of color, indigenous women, like that all comes secondary to us as white women. Yes. That's one piece of the, I think, to the thought process. Secondly, now there were women with, there were, there were white women with other shades of hair <laughs> on the country. Um, but I, but I did want to use that for emphasis so that the reader can understand the homogeneous, kind of nature of the brand right and um there was very little like as i said at the top of the article there are zero people of color at, in town and country's top leadership you know mm-hmm. looking at 
executive editor, editor-in-chief, publisher, you know, the, those top roles then in the broader staff, there was one full-time Black employee, which I'll mm-hmm. get into more detail in over the four years that I was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And um, and I have, a, I have a crazy story about that, about the, the four mm-hmm. years I was there. And then, you know, there's a sprinkle. There's, you know, a couple of Latinos. There's like an Asian person and Indian American. You know, it's like, it's very, very tempered um, mm-hmm. in a way that's really, and a lot of times feels like tokenism because now I look back and I reflect, you know, there mm-hmm. was this, there was a sense that I, as the one black contractor on this philanthropy summit over four years mm-hmm. makes town and country seem diverse. And I was at the, um, part of my role was uh, RSVP's guest relations check-in. I'm the, I was the first person that people saw when they walked right. into the plant up. So it's like, oh, town and country, they're good. They got a black right. woman right at the registration desk when you walk in. <laughs> Box checked. That's exactly what I was going to say. It seems like it was a box checking kind of situation, right? (laughs) Because once it got into any depth of like opportunity advancement, I am capable of doing more than these skill sets that's been pulled upon me for these first two years. That's where, that's where the opportunity stopped. And I think that, as I said, at the time, I didn't feel empowered to say something. And so I kept working, so, mm-hmm. you know, those first two years. And then I stayed, I was there for another two years um, in that same support role, working with Can, the blonde white women. Right. <laughs> Can we talk just a little bit about what you just said, which I think is really important. And that is that you did not feel empowered to say anything because One of the things that I like to highlight with this podcast is there are things that we don't say. There are things that we don't say because one, they're not reportable, but they are the impactful to us. Yes. Yes. And we need to say them. And so somebody needs to hear them. But but when you say that you didn't feel empowered, I think it's important for you to kind of elaborate on that. Because some people may not understand. Well, why not? Why can't you just go to somebody and just tell them what's happening? Why why not? Why didn't you feel empowered? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Part of it is like, I'm Black in America. Yes. And it's like, I'm Black with clients in corporate America. Mm -hmm. And I think in this, the empowerment that I feel in this post-George Floyd movement really can only be described that I have, I have felt a fundamental shift in myself over the last Mm. six to eight months. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, Mm -hmm. it, there was a a deep reckoning psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically that I had to go through before, as you said, putting pen to paper. And part of that psychological shift was realizing how indoctrinated I am and have been as a black woman in America. And by indoctrinated, what I mean is internalized racism. Yep. Indoctrinated to swallow discriminatory slights. Like, oh, oh, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of that's just the way it is in my life before now. Yes. And to your point about things that had 
things that were experienced but are not necessarily reportable. I remember, you know, out of all of my clients, town and country was probably the one where I most had to turn turn it on, meaning like the double consciousness of right. who who do I present myself to yeah. be when I walk into the town and country office. So I mm-hmm. am, you know, I'm a black woman in America. I do wear my hair naturally. I spent an incredible amount of mental space thinking about how I dress, how I spoke, how I interacted, because there was no space for me just to show up and be myself. It was my responsibility to assimilate, which I think Mm -hmm. is another notion that a lot of, a lot of us are indoctrinated with. Like when I walk Mm -hmm. into, and I've been in many spaces, my whole life, part of this indoctrination is I've been in many spaces over the course of my life, being the only black person in the room, being the only black woman in the room in all Mm -hmm. white spaces and it has always been indoctrinated it is my job as a black person to make all the white people feel comfortable (laughs) (laughs) and and i think all of us it's true we we all get that we've we've all done that all our lives and that is absolutely the truth Uh, and again you know and and the reality that saying something in a, and I can't even say short time ago, because I'm saying something now, town and country and hers is not calling me anytime soon to, to do a job with them. You know, right. the, the whole the several conversations that I had prior to starting the article, or even as I was brainstorming it was, Bernita, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to, you have to know that you're never going to work with them again. Mm-hmm. You need to know, like, you, you'll never get hired again. And so that fear of loss of livelihood, loss of economics keeps a lot of us from speaking up. So no, at mm-hmm. the same, you know, at the time I'm like, I'm trying to keep this client. I'm trying to play nice in the sandbox. Like maybe if I go along, eventually they'll see how, how good I am. And then it's right. just like, I just didn't realize I didn't, I didn't have the right. It's not, I shouldn't say I didn't realize I didn't have the right skin color, but it's right. just that I, I was still what I at one point was in the article, but I, I took out was this idea of before George Floyd, I was asleep. Mm-hmm. And that I actually thought that I'd done everything right, right? You know, I come from a good family, middle-class family, two-parent household, Ivy League education. And that I actually was walking in the world under the idea that the merit of the, my work and my character would be enough for me to be successful. Right. And to reckon you know to reckon with that that was that was a deep thing to go through this this summer mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people and if you already have that if you know it's like if you already are walking in the world with an understanding of and it's not that I didn't understand you have to work twice as hard to get half as far or four times as hard mm-hmm. to be on the same playing field I just had this sense that who I am was enough to make it in this world. And I really was not accounting for the machine that Mm. is inherent in systemic racism. Mm -hmm. But I see it now, you know, I see it in like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, when you break down my my client list, when you look look at the types of jobs that I get, there's a distinction. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction between my experiences with white clients and my experiences with black clients, absolutely. 
It's um, I I have to agree with you. You know, um, I think myself as well. Before before watching George George Floyd's life being snuffed, and by the way, it was an accident that I watched it because I didn't, mm. and and I didn't even realize. And, and and as I'm watching it, and I'm realizing what's happening. It was horrifying to me. Like I'm just horrified. But at the same time, just like you said, it. I think that that made black people and white people have a reckoning. We had a reckoning in that, you know, some of us might've felt like I'm just not doing enough or I'm just not saying enough, or I'm just walking through here. Like, it's okay. I'm, I'm okay with the privilege that I hold. Right. Because we all have a certain level of privilege depending on what, how we've been in this world. And I'm okay with the privilege that I hold. And it's not that I have any um, problem with other people, but oh my God, you know, like all of a sudden, like that's, that, that Mm -hmm. is my brother. That is my cousin. That is my son. That is my husband. That is, those are my people I'm watching getting snuffed right now. What, how do I, how do I process that? Yes. Yes. And I appreciate saying that because that was the first thing I did after watching that video was start writing, which goes into, you know, my, my journey with writing had already begun, mm-hmm. um, um, which is, I'm like, that's the whole story in and of itself. <laughs> and, and so I had, um, I just started contributing to the platform Om Noir, which is a, you know, this just awesome wellness community for women of color. Yeah, um, Christina Rice uh, started it. And that was my immediate reaction was to start writing. And to your point, my premise for the piece was to our brothers. Mm. And mm-hmm. that moment that I saw the video, it actually, because I saw it the day after on the 26th, mm-hmm. the day after Memorial Day, which happened to be my brother's birthday. Mm. and since my older brother and so we had the you know family birthday zoom going and it was like one side of my screen I'm watching this white officer's knee on George Floyd's neck and on the other side of the screen I'm like black family black father my brother's a father of four he's an entrepreneur he's a husband and it's just like who has the right to decide right who? Why? How? How? How is that possible? A black man's life isn't worth living. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it did. It rocked me to the core. And, mm-hmm. you know, that and, um, you know, subsequently participating in several protests and demonstrations over the summer. I think the point that it brings me back to in regards to the article and talking about systemic racism in corporate America and in even to your point, it's like di- diversity, inclusion, and equity programs in themselves have a lot of, are, are often perpetuating the systemic racism and really alleviating it. Mm-hmm. And this, and the insidiousness of it, so the mm-hmm. thing, you know, the things that are happening that are quote unquote are not reportable, just bring, brought back the idea that, you know, Black Lives Matter in all areas of life. And, you know, as people now start to compartmentalize, like Black Lives Matter in regards to police brutality is no, no, Black Lives Matter everywhere, across the board, in all areas. 
And so yeah. as you corporations randomly, you know, hey, hey, we're on board and here's our Black Lives Matter statement. My question in the form of this article is, what are you doing? What is your concrete action in response? Not just a statement, right. because your outsides do mm-hmm. not match your insides. And mm-hmm. that was my real point of contention with town and country is that the magazine has done a very good job, even pre-George Floyd, to mm-hmm. position itself, to assert itself in this conversation around reckoning with race, to make itself an important voice and platform around systemic racism and everything from mass incarceration to police violence to food deserts. And then they have no accountability on the back end, behind mm-hmm. the scenes, mm-hmm. that the, the insidiousness of the systemic racism that's happening in hiring and procurement and with its employees is is perpetuating the very topics that they are you know so proudly showcasing on their platforms right which begs the question I think of is it that they I find that sometimes that there's this there's this idea among some among white people that they already know things <laughs> right mm-hmm. we already know uh you know yes. they want to tell you how you feel they want to tell you how you should feel they want to tell you what it's doing to you mm-hmm. they already know and so maybe what they're doing is that they're doing this work they're they're putting all this out front And they can't see what they're doing because they already know Mm. that, that they're okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's just this, this disconnect between, you know, what you say and what you do. And that's why I would say, right. Isn't it? That's the thing. You always say, I can't hear what you're saying because I'm watching what you're doing and it's not connecting. And so I have to go by your actions because your words are cheap. Yes. Actions are harder, right? Actions take more. So it's, it's, I wonder about that. You know, I just. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's a few things because um, one, I always, I now ask the question, how do you know when everyone around the board table is white? How are you pinpointing what the needs are for community of color, communities of color? When everyone around you looks like you. One. And everyone around you lives in a neighborhood where everyone around them looks like them. So yeah. how, how, how do you, th- which is why I think that so many times these ad, ad campaigns come out and black people and brown people are like, what the fuck was Right, that? they look, yeah, they look crazy, right. <laughs> and then it's like, and they're like, oh, 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 we didn't meet, we didn't meet. Well, it's not about your intention. It's about the impact. And maybe if you had somebody or a few bodies in the room with you that could say, "Uh uh-uh, you might have gotten off better than just thinking you already know and then putting it out there and then having to retract and and do all those things and, 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 you know, run run for the hills. Well, I think in this case, I think that town and country, like a lot of brands, thought that they were doing a good thing thought that they were doing the right thing. Certainly thought that they were being very progressive and 
thinking outside of the box as much as it, you know, had the byproduct of benefit of feeding into white heroism. And, right. you know, look at how we are, you know, uplifting, you know, the uh, people of color. And I found that particularly again, reflecting back, because I was drinking the Kool-Aid too. I have no problem saying I was at Town and Country drinking the Kool-Aid. I was, you know, <laughs> the philanthropy summit, it was like, yes. And I Ava, here's Ava DuVernay is on the screen. Oh my God, look at this amazing conversation with Valerie Jarrett and John Legend. And we got, yeah, and we're doing it. And then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, see, here's the exploitation. So right. when you ask the question like, well, how did, you know, how do you know? Hey, here's an idea. We'll bring in black people to talk about these things. And then because we're holding the space yes. for, for black notables, our black really kind of like the, the cream of the crop of mm-hmm. our our black leaders, creatives, that because we're holding the space, we've done a good thing. And we're not accountable for the disconnect or the disparity or the discrepancy between the messages that we're seemingly supporting by holding the space for our Black notables to come in and speak, but then suppressing the opportunities and advancement for Black employees behind the scene. Right. We oh, is that a thing? Like, we just like, Oh, we didn't, you know, like there was no thought process to to, to how that's a disconnect. And so I used the word exploitation because I did walk into this process of writing the article under the impression and giving the benefit of the doubt that the who's who of Black talent that I name in the article who has been on the town and country stage for the town and country philanthropy summit does not know what's happening behind the scenes. I walk into this process that an Ava DuVernay, Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, Michael B. Jordan, Yara Shahidi, the Exonerated Five, Valerie Jarrett, John Legend, Robert F. Smith, don't know. That's the premise that I'm walking in. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know, and here's a brand that's like, hey, let's use this Black star power to elevate these messages, to come across as supporting racial equity, as you know, showing our support and our work and our progressiveness. And they don't know. I'm like, that is exploitation. And it's and it's not new for town mm-hmm. and country. Not mm-hmm. at all. They figured out a long time ago that black people are the definitive hot sauce on an otherwise bland white America. <laughs> you wrote that in the article and I had to laugh. I was like, yep. yep i mean when you when you think about it i mean when you think about fashion you think about uh uh beauty you think about all these these levels of beauty and fashion that people are trying to attain they all stem from black america african america you know african culture It, it all stems from there so absolutely I think you know they they needed that you said because they weren't doing that yeah so they needed that absolutely absolutely and it was important to me as I started to write the article to get into the history of town and country so you know starting with the magazine existing you 
know, longer than slavery. Then they get into the early 1900s. And it's really like, it was a, um, it was a society magazine, you know, debutantes and cotillions and weddings. And over the years, it had waned in circulation, waned in popula popularity. And as I was doing my research, that's when I found that Pamela Fiore, who was the editor-in-chief of Town & Country for 17 years, to your point about diversity, very much celebrated as the first woman editor-in-chief of Town & Country. And her secret sauce was she turned to diversity and that was the time, and she's really credited with um, bringing diversity into Town & Country, but it was a solution for turning around a magazine that had lost its luster, lost interest, lost its is circulation. And so as I'm doing this research, I get, I'm, you know, I came across this interview that Fiori had done in 2003. Mm -hmm. And in that interview, straight up, I mean, it's like, hey, the, the, the interview was about the fact that, hey, there's like Black people in town and country now, you know, we're seeing more color. This is different. You know, why is this happening? And, and what is the, you know, what's been the response? And she straight up said, well, I don't want to change the world, but I would like to change the magazine and change the world that our readers live in. I think it's certainly a much more interesting world. I think it's a lot more fun. I certainly think it's a lot more fascinating. And that fascination has been the run for Town & Country ever yeah. since. Mm -hmm. Since before, I believe it's still the motivating factor in its great interest in, in Black community and Black interests um, now, um, Latino as well, you know, you can say Black and Brown. Um, right. You know, certainly there's been uh, a number of Latinx powerhouses on that stage from uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Camilla McConaughey. And it's just the idea of a black people being fodder for entertainment for the town and country reader that right. I think is the, is the default setting. And it's also where the fault line um, lies in terms of the thought process that leads to your question of like, we already know they're not right. producing this content for us. They're right. not producing the content for Black America. They're producing the content for white America. Right. Which is still predominantly the town and country reader. Affluent, yeah. luxury, wealthy, white American families that are descendants of slave traders and plantation owners even today. Right. Right. That is right. still the core customer. And when an Ava DuVernay and Darren Walker are on stage, that is not for us. Right. It is for them. Right. So it's, so just as language evolves to dog whistle, air quotes, type phrases and, and things that people say that have gone undercover, it's the same as how using Black people for entertainment has kind of gone undercover, kind of oh, you're doing this and that's fantastic. And we want to, we want to elevate you for that, but we're not doing it in a, but over here, we're going to do this other thing, right? Well, we're going to elevate you over here because we, we recognize you as someone who can entertain us. 
But over here, we're not going to bother with the people that we actually can affect change for, because again, we're not here to change the world. Mm -hmm. We just want to make sure that the people that read our magazine are entertained and you entertain them. Over here, we would have to change the world. And so it's kind of, it's almost like when someone says something that is inherently racist and, or that is like a microaggression, which, you know, microaggressions are not micro, but they, they say a microaggression and someone goes, Hey, that affected me in this way. And they say, well, I didn't mean it that way. So, you know, almost to hell with how you're feeling. It Mm. seems to me that that's kind of what they do, right? They're doing this up here. And you're saying, but you know what, this is how it's affecting me over here, because you're not giving people equitable opportunities, you're not including people in the conversation, you're not actually doing what it shows that you're doing up front. And they say, well, that's not our intention. So, you know, we're just going to keep doing it the way that we're doing Mm -hmm. it. And that's pretty much what it has been. And of course, I'm like, sidebar, I'm like, oh my God, I love you, Ava. I love everything you do. Love you, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) But even though, but I'm not going to front. I'm not going to front. This this will be a sidebar conversation down the road. I do want to talk about what I feel is now the responsibility of our Black influencers, celebrities, talent that is now that you have, now that you have this information, you know what I mean? But to, to talk about um, not investing, because then we would have to change the world. To your point, it's like, not only are they not worried about it, but when you talk about actions, since the article came out, there's been no response from Town & Country or Hearst. Right. If anything, there's been a concerted effort to bury the article to pretend like it's not there, to keep silent on it. And I think that silence self says it all in terms right. of intention, in terms is of, violence. yes, in terms of, you know, really shedding light on what town and country is about. Yeah. Um, do I think they have an interest in changing the world even, even 20 years later? No. Um, do I think that if they can continue operating as they have been operating without consequence, they will? Yeah. Do I think they <laughs> likely think, how dare she mm. shine a light on what we feel? There's, there's nothing wrong with how, how they, you know, it's, it's. I think it's going to take time. You know, I recognize that the journey to achieving true racial equity, economic justice, social equity in this country. It is, we're still a long journey ahead. I mean, we're we are. 157 years out from the Emancipation Proclamation. There, and a lot has happened <laughs> in the last 157 years, but we're like, the disparity is still so great. And in a lot of ways, the disparity has gotten even larger over time. Yeah. And the and in that time period, the psychological gap for I won't say all, mm-hmm. but a great number of white Americans, of white corporate America, hasn't shrunk that much. 
Mm-hmm. And part of that you can see in our current election re- results. Oh, yep. A lot of people voted for the continuation of an administration that is built on perpetuating systemic racism in this country. Yep. We're happy to do that. And I think that the, um, as I said, I think the biggest indicator of what, of how town and country really feels in terms of investing in the communities that they uplift on their platforms is demonstrated in their silence. Yep. So what in your opinion would be, could be a first step in acknowledging and maybe changing what they're doing? Not, you know, because it's not our responsibility. We work our butts off to do, you know, what we need to do. What is their responsibility? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure, and I made it a point that at the end of the article to include certainly not comprehensive or what I think are like full stop, but I said, let's have some, at least some starter actions. Mm-hmm. So I think it starts with transparency. So I, I did add yes. a few calls to actions, including like, some of the first things that town and country can do is to mm-hmm. be transparent with this actual employee demographics. Mm-hmm. So if you have two Latinos and one Asian and one black person, like put that out there, be right. transparent about it. If you have four Latinos, put that out there. And then, you know, from there, create the metrics. You know, if they're going to be partnering with some organization or equity inclusion experts or whatever that is, put that plan to rectify those disparities out there. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever those numbers are meant to be. Because they mm-hmm. did, they did submit a, a statement when the Daily Beast reached out to Town and Country for comment. They sent just like a very plain, generic corporate yeah. statement that <laughs> basically said, "Oh, we do have." some underrepresented groups and we're working on making it more proportional, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of corporate statements that flew around about um, looking into their culture and augmented recruiting um, methods, whatever that is, whatever. (laughs) And so, okay, be transparent. What's the action plan to rectify the disparity Mm-hmm. And then it's like, what's the action plan to hold you, put the money where your mouth is? Yeah. So that is investing in Black African-American employees, contractors, suppliers, your, your procurement practices, and, be, and again, being transparent. And truth be told, it's not that crazy of an idea because other publications at Hearst have done it. So mm-hmm. like you can go online and look at something like Cosmopolitan Magazine, Cosmo Can Do Better, was a campaign that they put out. And it mm-hmm. bullet points those transparent numbers and this is what we're doing and these are the actions that we're going to take over, you know, it might have been over the next year or the next 12 months. Right, and then right. I would expect that you will come back with some metrics in terms of this is how we did. We did well right. in this area, we didn't do well in this area. Tommy, yeah. she can do that, but they have not said a word. Right. Yeah. 
even within their bigger corporation, there's information there that they can tap into. They can go to those other publications and say, hey, you know, we're your sister publication or, you know, brother, pub whatever, you know, cousin publication over here. We'd like to check out what you're doing and see how we can make it work for our purposes. Right. If I, I would think if they want to. And I think when I talk about these action items and, you know, that was one of the hashtags I put on the article, what's your action? Mm -hmm. It's because some of the things that have happened there truly cannot happen again. So to, mm -hmm. to backtrack, I talked about there being a one black employee. While, while I, I was, was going to ask you just about that. I was about yeah, to go, so, wait, we got to go back. <laughs> Good. And when I said, I was like, oh, I have a crazy story because mm -hmm. I remember meeting him. My last year on the project would have been 2019, the 2019 mm -hmm. philanthropy summit. And, you know, he's a just like very beautiful, very distinct face, you know, like we do like dark chocolate brown skin brother. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember he stuck out to me, but, and it's like, of course he stuck out to me because he was the one other black person in the office. And I remember on meeting him, I thought in my head, like, oh, he's new. Mm. Okay. Thompson, you're not new. And then it turned out he had been there for eight and a half years. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I've been coming here every spring for four years. Right. And, this and I didn't meet you for the first three years. Where was he? Right. When we talk about visibility, mm. visibility on the floor, visibility in meetings, visibility mm -hmm. at the philanthropy summit, which otherwise right. I saw was an all hands on deck kind of situation, mm -hmm. you know, all the, and I'm like, where was he? Mm -hmm. I'm like, town and country, the office isn't that big. There's no way that I didn't notice the one other black person <laughs> in the <laughs> office. <laughs> Right. there's no way there's right. no way okay so he turned out he had been there for eight and a half years this brother was not promoted one time the whole time that he was there eight and a half years he started out as an editorial assistant and he resigned as an editorialist and when i really let that sink in it's like how do you do that to a person town and country now, I understand at one point he had a lateral move as a fashion assistant, but how do you take nearly a decade of someone's career? Right. And just say, hurry up and wait. Because mm -hmm. it's usually, usually that's what happens. It's like, even if you, when you build up that, that courage to go in there and say, hey, you know, one, two, three people were hired after me and they've been promoted before me. I would like to be considered for promotion. Why isn't that happening? Or whatever, you, whatever it is that you, you muster up the gumption to go in and say, the response is usually, oh, oh, you're doing such a great job. You know, don't worry. Your time will come. Hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. Yes. No? Yes. And that's exactly, you hit the nail on the head. And it's crazy to me because as I was working on the article and kind of talking through this section of the piece, several people just said, oh, well, did he advocate for himself? Did he raise it to his supervisor, you know, ask for pay raises, ask for the promotion? And he did. That was what was communicated. What he communicated to me was mm -hmm. that um, hurry up and wait was real. Asking for promotions and then being told, 
oh, we're already planning to bring in someone else for that role that just opened up. Uh, why don't you just wait a few more issues? But in the meantime, here, here's, you can take on more responsibility. Here's all this uh, extra work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And he, he really spoke to, I think he really did his best mm -hmm. to make the most of the situation. And I wouldn't go as far as speaking for him in terms of his experience with the mm -hmm. indoctrination of being Black in America. Right. But I think that part of that, and I know I could say it was true for me, is that sometimes there's such an attachment to the idea of, oh, but it's town and country. Mm. Oh, it's this, but this, this big prestigious brand. So while in other scenarios, a person might be like, hey, I've been at this organization for three, four years and nothing's moving. I'm out. Right. I think he really tried to work within that space right. and make and, a and difference in that space. Yeah. And to your point, um, saw white co-workers hired after him, get promoted before him. He heard that he heard kind of, you know, from the, the water cooler that he was being paid less than his white counterparts. And it didn't matter that he came in early. He took an extra work. He got great performance reviews. And even so far as like in the end, he said, I was doing the work of a senior editor. Mm -hmm. And um, never once. And then that and then that pay inequity piece, you know, it's like mm -hmm. people don't think about when you suppress someone's wages or salaries over that amount of time, it impacts their ability to generate wealth over the course of their career. It impacts their ability to set aside a comfortable retirement or to, mm -hmm. it is, it is such a trickle down effect. And, you know, as those reports came out this summer talking about the disparity between black and white, that the average black household income is 10% of the average white household income. And you start asking, well, why is that? And that, mm -hmm. and those numbers are crazy because the average white household income is $175,000 a year in this country. That means that the average black household income is $17,500. And yet yeah. it's like, oh, we don't know why it's like that. We don't know. It's just like, you know, it's just, or, it just, just happened that way. You know, they, they're just not working hard enough. They're, uh -huh. they're, not, they're not working hard enough. They're lazy. You know, I can do this. Why can't they do it? There's so many things like that, that I, when I hear such stuff like that, I, first of all, if somebody ever says stuff like that, I just go, they're just not even ready for the right conversation. They mm. are not even equipped to have yeah. the conversation because if you can even think that, that means your brain is shut down. You're, you are living in the la la racist land and that's where you want to be. And you know what? That's on you. But um, I do, you know, I, 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 it's, it's incredible to me. And the thing is, one of the things that I talk about when I talk about this sort of thing, so, you know, I'm creating this, this coaching course that I want to um, deliver to entrepreneurs and small business owners, and it is to create a more equitable and inclusive workplace so that then you can actually become more diverse because you'll be more magnetic because people will be drawn to you because you mm. have this equitable culture, right? But it is the amount of money, even if we're ta talking social justice, we're not talking about civil justice. We're not talking about any of that. 
but monetarily, the amount of money that the country as a whole suffers and loses because of these mm. ideas is staggering. So the last time I watched something, I about about a year ago, it was a financial person from Bloomberg, and she was talking about how, you know, racism is costing America a, approximately, uh, I think it was three point one trillion dollars right now. Wow. So when project that into the future, it only goes higher, mm -hmm. right? And there are so many other ways. Like, so now we're talking, we're just talking monetarily, but what about emotionally? What about socially? What about health wise? There's so many ways that people and not just black people, but white people are, are suffering just the same, you know, not just the same not just the same, but they are suffering as well because they refuse <laughs> to acknowledge and to open up an equitable way of life. Mm -hmm. And so everyone suffers. Except the 1%, because that that's is it. actually what, <laughs> yes. that's actually what our country is designed to support. Yeah. You know, as we, as, you know, yeah. really start breaking it down. And it's so funny, like, for all the years that the, like, for all the years that the Hunger Games like debuted, they were hot. They were on, never watched, never saw one of them. I actually ended up watching all four of them back to back, like over the holidays this yeah, past yeah, year. Yeah. And so um, I was just like, oh my god, America, the Hunger Games, straight up. Hunger Games. The the center city is our one percent. Mm -hmm. And all these outlier, you know, communities all yeah. work to support that 1%. And the way, you know, the way race plays into that is to your point of, you know, poor whites, underserved communities that are, uh, you know, white communities, you know, that's where race is key, right? Because the 1% tells those poor white communities that, you're poor and you're, it's because your opportunities are being taken by the black people. Yeah. Yeah. By the black, the Latinos and people of color. Mm -hmm. And that is a narrative as old as Methuselah and it still works. <laughs> it still works. It's actually what Donald Trump's whole campaign premise runs yes. on. Mm -hmm. I do believe we can achieve racial equity. I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime. Right. I certainly am committed to being part of the progress. And I think each of us like are committed to contributing to it moving forward. But yeah. it's, it is deep. It is deep. And it's designed. Yeah, it's really so as much as like, America might be hemorrhaging trillions of dollars a years because of systemic racism, the people at the top are good. They're good. They're yeah. good. Right. And, good. You know? <sighs> yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And, and that actually makes me think about, um, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, privilege and each of us having like a certain place of privilege. That was another piece that really, I think, shook me around my realization of what was happening at, at Town & Country. And the, the exact moment, and I just said a few, a few minutes ago, I'm like, 
as I'm saying all of this, I'm like, I still love, I'm like, Ava, I love Ava. <laughs> I mean, um, nothing but respect for, for yes. Aaron Walker and the, and the Ford Foundation, but it's like, I am surprised and maybe even a little bit concerned that on the side of the influencer celebrities talent, black talent that has been on the town and country country stage since this, since this article came out there is has also been a, a level of silence and mm. what shakes me with that is this is what the conversation that i watched that really woke me up so on for the 2020 philanthropy summit which was digital all virtual this year of course with covid this mm-hmm. was back in july I'm watching Ava DuVernay and Darren Walker have a conversation about privilege and in the context of the push towards racial equity, hearing things like people in positions of privilege, including the hosts, mm. including the white, you know, wealthy white people in positions of privilege being called upon to engage in the concrete work of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. That reconciliation around race, Mm -hmm. uh, equity, inclusion. To hear that this is no longer a time for amelioration. To hear that this is no longer a time for token approaches, token approaches to systemic practices. And so I don't fully understand I understand if you don't know. Right. Um, But if you hear something. But if you hear something, meaning that I understand being a Black celebrity, talent, influencer, and participating in the Town and Country Philanthropy Summit before this time, not knowing what was happening behind the scenes. I get that. I'll knock anybody for it. Right. But now we're telling you what's happening behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and really in telling you what's happening we're really hopeful that our voices and our stories are not going to fall on deaf ears in our own black community that we look up to yeah so it's like i i wrote three stories in that article my Mm -hmm. story discrimination the former editorial assistant as well as a marketing director who was at Hearst at large. Yeah. And his own story of even as the racial bias and lack of inclusion was being acknowledged as he Mm -hmm. brought it up, they still Mm -hmm. told him that he was the problem. And in the the attempts to reconcile the situation with HR, human resources, he was told he was the problem. There was no evidence of racial bias happening to him. Right. And for someone to resign, citing, needing to maintain his mental and emotional health, that was just three stories. Since the article came out, more people have come forward. Mm. And when the article came out, I started getting DMs, my IG, like, oh my goodness, Bernita, I'm a former employee as well. And wow. this is my story of discrimination. Mm-hmm. So there's more of us. Right. And I would hope that if the information has been received, 
Right. Amongst our, as I said, this is the who's who of black talent that goes on that right. stage. Yeah, yeah. That it would not fall on deaf, deaf ears because we do right. need community around this. Mm-hmm. We do need uplift. And to, the, to your point about the responsibility piece, I think that once you know and once you have the information, I ask the question, what do you do with it? What do you do? And I understand that it may not be an easy answer. It may not be a black and white answer, but I would hope that the answer is not silence and it gets swept under the rug because our influencers, our celebrities, our talent, they have a realm of fear of power and influence that we don't have. Right. So it's like, if you are going to continue to lend your star star power to such a brand, mm-hmm. what are now the requirements? What is the criteria that mm-hmm. Talent Country has to live up to? Because mm-hmm. I mean, I could easily say, in an ideal world, everybody just boycott and I'm not going to participate anymore. But it's like, right? I can imagine, it's not a conversation I've had, but I can imagine like, we can probably pull together in a bit more of a strategic way. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm still hopeful that that is something that can happen because our, our people are empowered to stand up for ourselves now, including our celebrities and influencers in a way that didn't exist a generation ago yeah. or even a decade ago. We have a new level of sphere of influence that I hope we can come together on and use in some way. I have to agree with you. It's it's one thing to not know and say and go, you didn't know. But then if you do know or if the information comes to light to you, what what do you do with it? Do you just say, well, I didn't know and still say I didn't know or do you do you do something with it and so it's 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 legit and I think it's particularly when you know when as a talent or celebrity or influencer that you there too is their brand of banding together of working in the space around racial equity of doing I mean we know the body of work of everyone that I've named very much speaks to building our community up. Right. So yeah. I'm, you know, it's like, yeah, I guess I would, you know, as a, as I mentioned, it was like, it would, I would be taken by surprise if, whether it was a, a Michael B. Jordan or uh, an Ava or a Valerie Jarrett did not feel moved to move by gaining the information of what's really happening. Right. At town and country. Yeah. I would be surprised too. And, you know, here's hoping that they'll hear something. <laughs> There's some way, somehow. <laughs> they can listen to my little podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, truly so. That's why, I mean, I, in terms of raising our voices, again, I think that all of it is, is, is working and building together. You know, again, I, I, I truly appreciate yeah, this afternoon. And, you know, as, as I talk about us, even I, you know, there is not the saying, you know, 
brand and widespread knowledge. I do believe in strength in numbers. Yeah. I do believe that if many voices come together, yeah. um, we can be impactful. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, I, I feel highly motivated, particularly as additional former employees started coming forward, that mm -hmm. this is not mm -hmm. something that I can allow to just get swept under the rug. Right. So whether, whether there was a celebrity backing or not, I, you know, many, many movements in this world have started with just a few voices and to, that say like, this isn't right. So I don't want to, I don't, I don't want it to true. come across like I, I, or we need help. We are dependent on no, celebrities of coming forward, but that the, the, the strength in numbers and, and probably the last thing I would say, I think what's coming next out of this article and this piece is um, what would it look like for just us to start pulling on our networks, our friends, our families, mm -hmm. and start pinging town and country's advertisers, their supporters, mm -hmm. calling out those who continue to support the brand and making sure that they have this information and asking them, what are you going to do, what now, are you doing? Now, that you, that, now that you have this information, if you didn't know it before? The uh, Partnership for New York City, which is uh, an organization that the president and CEO of Hearst is a chair co-chair of, uh, Steve Swartz. And pinging all 191 who have pledged their commitment to racial equity saying, yeah. what are you going to do about this? How are you all holding each other accountable? Accountable. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then in terms of strength and numbers, I really came up out of this piece thinking about there's so many of us with so many stories. And while I have moved into a space of to hell with it, I'm going to write this mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to keep talking about it. I totally understand that a lot of people have not. Sure. There. And there is a need for safe spaces. For mm -hmm. us to raise these stories to be as anonymous or as specific as we want or feel that we need so that I think with that mass kind of collection of here are not one voice, not three voices, here's 10, here's 20, there's, here's 2,500, right. that it starts making it a lot harder to ignore. Right. I mean, that's what happened with Bill Cosby and... Weinstein and several other people. So why not here? I am so glad that you came on today. Is there anything else that you would like to share with everyone? Like, can, can people contact you? Where, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? And, you know, what, what are you, what are you doing? What are you offering? How can they work with you if they want to support you in what you do and that sort of thing? share with us all of that <laughs> absolutely no i love it i love it because i i'm definitely i'm all about connecting so i certainly would love to um build connections from this experience um i do, I do have an online presence um, my new website is up for um as i mentioned i have started my uh, transition into um, being a full-time writer um, so I'm excited for more writing opportunities as a contributing writer. Um, yes. Also on my social, I, I'm definitely on, you know, Facebook and Twitter, but my primary is Instagram with 
and Bernita Adele. So my first and middle name together. And um, yeah, you can definitely catch me there. In terms of kind of calls to action out of this, definitely go and read the article. And what's exciting is that uh, the Daily Beats has elevated the article. Again, it's going to be on the front page this weekend. This is the weekend of, where are we, November 14th, 15th? Yeah, 14th, 15th, yeah. Um, So this will be, it's it's fresh and highlighted again. So you can definitely go check out the article, um, read that, share that, you know, please, you know, post it to your social, get it in front of people, as many people as possible. And then um, you'll be able to, you know, check out my Twitter page at Human Intonation, which is um, another one of my brands. And there I'm going to be focused on the kind of Twitter campaign to get the article and the information in front of those sponsors and advertisers and partners uh, that we talked about. And really and truly, I think it really comes down to we all have to understand the power of our dollar. So Mm -hmm. to your point, even as we talk about disparities in income and wealth in this country, our community spends and we have a tremendous amount of, the black community has a tremendous amount of buying power in this country. So Mm -hmm. when we take our dollars away, it does impact. And so if you, if there are brands on this average list of advertisers that you use or that you have used, or even that you just feel you know passionately about, look out for pinging um, advertisers, sponsors, partners, and, and spreading the word about what's happening in time. Perfect. Sounds good. I will put all of your links in the show notes, uh, as well as the link to the article so that it will be there forever and ever. and people will always be able to go to it and thank you thank you thank you for lifting your voice for you know doing the brave thing and saying to hell with it and just writing the article and getting it out there because you know I liken it to you know what Colin Kaepernick did he knew what the consequences could be he knew and he took that and and it really struck a nerve and so that's that's what needs to happen So thank you so much, Vernita. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Um, you, Seti. This is awesome. (laughs) And uh, you keep doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for holding the space, creating the space and for talking about issues and things that are, that matter to our community. Thank you. Whew. If you enjoyed that episode and if you found any value in it, I ask that you please look in the show notes and share the article far and wide. Tell your friends and your family to come listen to Vernita on this podcast because it's important that these stories be shared and that the information be taken seriously so that we can affect the change that we so desperately want and need in this country. The dismantling of racial systems that are oppressive to those who are on the margins. Thank you for listening. And next week, we'll have Reginald Colas back on Diversity Dish. We'll see you then.